Church, our passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 John. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and we'll go to chapter 3, verse 3. If you are using the, the Bible in the, in the pew, uh, that is on page 1022. Let me read this for us. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord together and pray for his guidance as we look to this text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to look to it, to see what you have said and how your spirit might apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask that you give us insight, give us understanding. Keep us from distractions, Lord, and allow us to grow in love for you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, do you ever think about what it will be like on that day when Jesus returns? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever imagine what it will be like when he comes Maybe imagine what you'll be doing. It's funny how we all remember exactly where we are when big life-changing events take place. And I'm sure it'll be exactly the same when Christ returns, only multiplied a hundred times. In that moment, we will all know that everything has changed. And we'll always be able to look back and say, I knew exactly where I was. Personally, I, I think it's fun to think about this, to dream about what it will be like or where I'll be when it happens. Oftentimes, I'm usually thinking about it here at church, and I think about what would it be like if Jesus came back as we are worshiping, as we are singing his praises, the roof gets ripped off, and we see him coming on the clouds. That would be cool. Do you think about that day and how you will respond you think about what your reaction will be like? Will you instantly be filled with excitement and joy? Or will you shrink in shame at his coming? One thing we know is that this day will be very clarifying. There will be those who receive the Lord with confidence and others who shrink back in shame because of the way they've lived. And it's important to think about how will I respond on that day? 
Everyone wants to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet we know that there will be many who hear, depart from me. I never knew you. How can we have confidence that we'll be in that first group? And this is the question of assurance. How can I have assurance that I will be welcomed into Christ's kingdom when he returns? How can I know that I am truly in Christ? And this is a question that the, first, the, the book of 1 John is all about. Uh, the apostle John wrote this letter to a group of churches that had recently been shaken in their faith. False teachers had infiltrated the church. They had spread false doctrine and were confusing people about what it really means to be in Christ. Although these false teachers claimed to have this close, intimate relationship with God, they lived lives that did not reflect that. So they, on the one hand, they preached closeness with God, and yet they lived lives of immorality. And eventually, these false teachers left the church. We saw that last time I was able to preach. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, speaking of these false teachers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these false teachers went out from the church because they were never truly a part of the church. But this does not mean that their leaving made it easy for those who were left. Their leaving caused confusion. I'm sure it caused frustration and doubt among the believers. You can imagine how shaking it can be to have someone walk away from their faith. Someone leave Christianity, and even much more so if that person was a spiritual mentor of yours or a friend. You would be left questioning everything, questioning your assurance. Am I holding to the right doctrine? And so this is the context that John writes his letter, 1 John, in. John writes this letter to a group of churches that are hurting, and he writes them so that they would know the difference between true faith and a counterfeit faith. John wants these believers that he loves and he cares about to have assurance that they are truly in the faith. He wants them to have confidence that what they've believed, what they've held to from the very beginning is a gospel that saves. John states his purpose for the letter really clearly. We see it actually at the end of the book. John 5.13, 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to this group of churches so that they would know that they have eternal life. And so with this as the context, we can now begin working through our passage and seeing how our passage fits into the larger passage. And then ultimately, we want to see what does the Holy Spirit have for us in this passage? So to help us break it down, to, to make it a little bit more digestible, I've broken it into three sections. We'll first see John's command to abide. Second, we will see John's call to behold the lo God's love. And finally, we will see John's call to look forward to Christ's return. In each one of these sections, John is going to pastorally guide the believers into how they can have greater assurance and confidence. In other words, each one of these sections 
we're going to see John providing the church with something that they need to have assurance. I've titled this first section, Abide in Christ. And in this section, we're going to see how abiding leads to a greater confidence. Let me read for us verse 28 and 29. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John begins this section by saying, and now, little children. And John has just wrapped up a previous section. Uh, In verse 27, John wrapped up a section that was on the false teachers. And now John is beginning a new section in the letter. And this section is going to be focused on what it means to be a child of God. And as John begins, he addresses his audience, these believers in the church, as little children. He calls them little children. And this is not a belittling way to refer to them, but this is a term of endearment. As an older man, both physically now and spiritually, John cares for these believers. He cares for them as a father, caring for his children. And throughout the whole letter, we're going to see John use this term, little children, again and again, the same term that Jesus used when he was talking about talking to his disciples. And this shows us that John is writing with kindness and gentleness. And in the very beginning of the passage, we see John give a command to the church. This is a command that comes in verse 28, and it's actually really the only imperative that we see in the whole passage. John writes, little children, abide in him. This is John's command to the church. And yet, this is not a new command that John is giving. If you look back just one verse, verse 27, John actually gives this exact same command as he wraps up that last section. So John is simply repeating himself as he begins this next section of the letter. You can think about it as if John is saying, I know I just told you this, but it's so important, let me repeat myself, abide in him. And if you are familiar with the book of 1 John or the gospel of John, you will recognize this word abide is an important one. As you read, you will see this word throughout both of the books. It's a topic that John hits often. And I counted in the book of 1 John, the word is used 18 times. I didn't count how many times in the gospel of John, but I'm sure it would be a lot more. And because we see this command so often, we know that it's an important one. We see John command it twice in 1 John and then Jesus himself tells the disciples that the key to being a productive, living a productive, fruitful life is to abide. So we know that all of God's commands are important, but when the Bible highlights something this often, we really need to pay attention. And so in order to obey this command, to understand this command, we need to look at what does it mean to abide? What is John talking about here? And before answering what it means, I want to first clear up what this does not mean. Abiding in Christ does not mean reaching some high mystical state of being. It is not like a a spiritual level that only really mature Christians attain because it has some secret wisdom behind it. We're not talking about the Christian version of meditating where you sit alone for long hours trying to get 
one with God. That is not what he's talking about. Abiding is not the Christian version of yoga or something like that. What John is talking, um, yeah, that's not what John is talking about. Uh, and I, and I, the reason I say that is because sometimes in Christian circles, the word abide gets thrown out with, without an understanding of what it means. It's, it's one of those things that maybe people don't really know what it means, but they know they're not, and then they know that they should be, and you know if you know. And so everyone's trying to abide, but not really understanding what it means necessarily. And so because of that, we want to look to the Bible to see what does this mean? How can we rightly understand what it means to abide? And the Bible is clear that what it means to abide is to remain in Christ. Abiding in Christ means remaining in Christ. The the idea is that as Christians, we remain. We are to rest in him, to let God's word fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our actions. This is the opposite of living for ourself, living by our own strength, by our own power, looking to accomplish the spiritual life on our own without Christ. Abiding means remaining in him. And Jesus himself gives us the perfect illustration of what it means to abide. In John 15, as Jesus is talking with his disciples in the upper room, he tells them what it means to abide and gives them this perfect illustration. Let me read this for us. It says, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in this passage, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Abiding in him means staying connected to him. Abiding in him means being connected so that his love, his strength flows through us. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That means we can do nothing of eternal worth unless we abide. And in the context of the letter, it is clear to see that those who came into the church, these false teachers, they did the opposite of abiding. They came in preaching this close relationship with God, and then ultimately they left. Instead of staying connected to Christ, they went out. That is why John is calling the true believers to abide. He's saying, do not be like those who left. Remain. Hold on to the message that I told you from the very beginning. So at the basic level, John's call to abide in Christ simply means remaining in him, living a faithful Christian life. It means dwelling in Christ so that he produces good fruit through us. Abiding in Christ means staying connected to Jesus as the life source. And for some of you, that might not be clear enough. That might be a little bit vague, but John helps us by showing us what we can do how we can abide. John shows us two main ways that we can, as Christians, continue to abide in Christ. And the first way that we see is we treasure God's word. The first way that as Christians we abide 
is by treasuring God's word. John makes this clear in 1 John chapter 2.24. Again, just in the, in the last section that we looked at. John writes, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John is referring to what you heard from the beginning, and he's using it to talk about the message of the gospel. Right? These, these false teachers had come in. They had tried to pervert the gospel, to change the gospel by adding to it. And John is saying, go back and remember what you heard from the beginning. The simple truth of the gospel and abide in that. And this is, this is true for us today. If we want to abide in Christ, we need to treasure God's word. We need to hold on to it and protect the message of the gospel from being distorted or changed. We do this in two ways. We do this corporately as a church, and we do this individually. As a church, together, we treasure God's word by letting it guide us. Instead of using human wisdom as a church, we allow God's word to be the ultimate authority in all things. We don't worry about the culture not loving us. We don't worry about the culture not wanting to praise us as much. We allow God's word to say the same. We don't change it. We don't edit it. That's how we treasure God's word corporately. And as individuals, we treasure God's word by knowing it, by meditating on it, by studying God's word and letting it change the way we think, allowing it to show us Christ so that we grow in love for him. The second way that John shows us to abide is by living in obedience to God's word. You can see how these are connected. First, we treasure God's word. And then secondly, we allow that word to change us and flow out in obedience. So we live in obedience to God's word. You can look to John 15, 10. Again, this is the passage that I've already referred where Jesus is teaching his disciples. And in this, he says this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So as I said earlier, abiding is not some mystical level that we're looking to. Trying to level up and gain the spiritual status. Jesus makes it clear, if we want to abide, we are to keep his commandments. We need to live lives of obedience to his word. We need to treasure his word and live it out in our lives. According to Jesus, that's how we abide. And this was something that the, the church John was writing to desperately needed to hear. Right? These, these false teachers had claimed to be close with God. They had claimed to have intimate access to God, and yet they had not lived righteous lives. And so John is showing them that's not what it means to abide. Those who claim to abide and yet do not live out God's word, are liars. It's not consistent. And that's something we also need to hear in our day. As we think about our own lives, as we want to abide, as we want to remain in Christ, are we taking God's commands seriously? Are we looking to his word to establish our priorities? To change the way we live? Abiding in Christ is not mysterious hidden truth 
but it means treasuring God's word and living in obedience to what he's called us to. And so now that we have seen that, what we've, now that we've looked at what it means to uh, abide, we can move forward now. Let me continue reading in our passage. John writes, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Here we see John is focusing on, on the issue of assurance. Right? John has just talked about what it means to abide and now he is showing them the result, the result of if you abide. He's showing them that abiding in Christ and having confidence when Christ comes are connected. Those are linked together. He writes, abide in him so that when Christ returns, we will have confidence. John is showing that the confidence comes from abiding. Since John's whole point in this letter is to help believers grow in their assurance, they are truly in Christ. He is showing them that abiding in Christ will lead to that certain con- that, that confidence that we all want. And this, again, is exactly what the believers needed to hear. With the false teachers telling them these lies, telling them false things about what it means to be a Christian, they would have doubted. Can I have confidence that Christ, that I will be with Christ when he returns? And so John is clearing up the air. He's showing them what it means. You can have confidence. And that looks like abiding. John is showing them that confidence and assurance comes from simply abiding in Christ. He's showing that there's not a magic formula. There's not a magic spell. But if you abide in Christ, you can have confidence at his return. You will not be like these false teachers. These false teachers, when Christ returns, they will realize instantly that they were not truly abiding. The same message that John had for the early church is the message that he has for us. If we want to have assurance at Christ's return, our job is to abide. Abide in him, treasure his word, and live in obedience to his commands. Although we won't be perfect, as we abide, we will grow. If, however... We're not treasuring God's word. If we're not living in obedience to what God has called us to, we can't have that same level of assurance. Now, this does not mean that you're not a Christian necessarily, but you can't have that same assurance if you're not walking in obedience to God's word. Walking in obedience, abiding in him, gives us that sense of assurance. And now, I want to address maybe a question that arises as I, as I talk about this. This question that if assurance comes through abiding in Christ and we abide through treasuring God's word and being obedient, does that mean that our love for God and our obedience is what saves us? Are we talking about a works-based salvation? And is that what this passage is talking about? And the answer is no. We are not justified by our obedience. And actually, the, next, the very next verse we're going to see clears this up. If you would look with me at verse 29. John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in this verse, John is making the point that those who practice righteousness do so because they are children of God. 
Another way of saying this is God's children practice righteousness because God is righteousness. And his children will resemble him. This is something that we see again and again in the Bible. We saw it in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, as we worked our way through that book, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. God's children will practice righteousness because God is righteousness. God is righteous and and they have been born of him. And in the same way, true Christians abide in Christ, not in order to become a child of God, but because God has already adopted them and brought them into his family. The only reason why anyone can truly abide in the first place is because God has made it possible. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is the one that first loved us. He is the one that brought us into this place where we can abide. So as we abide, as God's children, we grow in confidence that we are God's children since we know that the only way we can practice righteousness is if we're truly born of God. 2 Peter 1.10 puts this same idea in a little bit different way. Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter is saying, Don't sit around wondering if you are Christian. Instead, abide in Christ. Treasure his word and obey him. And as you do, you will grow in assurance that God is working in you. And so as we think about this, we can ask the question, where am I at in this situation? Am I abiding in Christ by practicing righteousness? Am I treasuring God's word and looking to be obedient. This passage uses that that phrase, practicing righteousness. A believer's life will not be perfect, but it will look different than those who are not in Christ. Those who are truly born of God will slowly over their life continue to practice righteousness. And again, this doesn't mean that we're perfect by any means. When I practice something, such as a sport or a music instrument, I'm often really bad. That's why I practice, to grow and to get better. But if you looked at how many times I failed, you would not know that I was actually getting better. I love that phrase, we practice righteousness. By God's grace, he will cause us to make progress. Sometimes it's slow and hard, but as we practice over a lifetime, God will guide us forward. But this is different because there are those who are not practicing righteousness. There are those outside of Christ who are practicing sin. And this is what chapter 3 is all about. 
over a lifetime, they're slowly getting better at sin. They're slowly finding new and more efficient ways to hide their sin or to get away with their sin. This is talking about a heart issue, a heart that longs to sin rather than a heart that looks to grow in righteousness. And so as we look at our own life, we can see the difference. Are we practicing righteousness, longing to grow better at it and failing again and again? Or are we looking to grow in sin, to look to get better at hiding our sin? And this is, Lord willing, encouraging to you. If you examine your life and you realize, hey, by God's grace, he has given me a desire to grow. He has given me a desire to know him, to practice righteousness. That is the assurance that Christ is working in you. That is evidence that you have been born of God. And so the encouragement is to continue, to continue to walk by the Spirit and by his grace abide in him by treasuring his word and being obedient to his commands. As you do this, your confidence will grow. Let's now move now to the the second section of our passage. And this section I have titled, Behold the Love of God. In this section, we're going to see John remind the churches of the incredible love that God has poured out on them. John has just talked with the churches about practicing righteousness and and those born of God will be righteous. And now he's going to expand on what that love is that allows us to do this. You can look with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So John starts this by saying, See what kind of love the Father has given us. Literally, Translated, John is saying, from what country comes this love? John is overwhelmed by the love that God has given. He doesn't know where it's from. Where has this come from? This is not a love that comes from earth, but it's otherworldly. It's totally unlike anything we know or are used to. And as an old man, I'm sure John has witnessed many great acts of love during his lifetime. So why is this one so different? What makes this love that John is talking about so much more incredible than all the other loves? And he tells us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is talking about the doctrine of adoption. This is the incredible truth that God not only forgives sinners, but he adopts them. You see, for God to simply forgive us would be one of the greatest acts of love, the greatest act of love the world has ever seen, and yet his love does not stop there. God's love goes beyond that. John is reminding the church that God's love takes rebellious sinners, the very ones responsible for putting his son on the cross. He takes those sinners and he adopts them, makes them sons and daughters. In doing this, John is lifting their eyes calling their gaze to focus on Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The message that John had for the early church is the same message for us today. You and I were those sinners. We are those sinners responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. But by God's grace, we have been changed. We have gone from enemies to sons and daughters. This is the love that John is talking about here. For Christians, this love of God that has been shown to us is the source of all of our motivation. Our love for God and our obedience to him should always flow from an understanding of what he has done for us. We love because he first loved us. We obey because we have been adopted into God's family. We have a good heavenly father who gives us good rules. That is true about us. We are adopted sons and daughters. So if you find yourself unmotivated to love God, if you find yourself unmotivated to follow his commands, perhaps it's because you've never truly understood the weight of what God has done for you. Perhaps the truth of God's love overcoming our sin has never really sunk in for you. When we understand, when we meditate on Christ, his perfection, his holiness, his truth, the fact that we've been adopted by him, this is what changes our hearts. Knowing this love causes us to love. As we grow in love, our hearts will overflow into obedient lives. So if you've never understood this, if this is, if this is something foreign, if the Christian life is doing the things that you don't want to do because you know you should, then I would encourage you not to try harder, but to meditate on what God has done for you. Find verses that speak on God's adopting work and take time to meditate on them. Let that impact your life. Let the effect of knowing that you have a loving Heavenly Father change the way you see everything. As you do, you will begin to love God and love His commands. It has been such a joy for me as I've been looking forward to this message and been preparing for it to sit under this truth, to think about this truth as I've been preparing. Let's keep moving through our passage. John writes, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So John has just finished telling the churches that they are God's children, but then he reminds them that the world is not going to recognize who they are. Since the world did not recognize Jesus, we should not expect the world to recognize us either. People might have known a lot of facts about Jesus, but they could never have truly known him because they didn't know the Father. They could never understand what drove Jesus. What was his motivation? What was his connection with God the Father? And in the same way, as children of God, we should not expect the world to understand us. We can get along with people. People can know details of our life, and yet they'll never truly know why we do what we do. What is our motivation? How is this love that God has given you motivating you to obey, to be weird for God, to do things that are strange according to the culture? And, and that's okay. It's okay for them not to understand 
John reminds us that they, they can't. They didn't, under, they didn't know Jesus, so they won't recognize us. If the world rejected Jesus, should we expect that it will accept us? And maybe if the world does accept us, that, that says something about our lives. Are we truly living like him? If everything that we do makes sense to the world, everything that we do prioritize, focus in on, if that makes sense to the world, are we truly following after Jesus? That's something that we can think about as we examine our adoption. So finally, section three, we're going to move into seeing how John teaches on what will happen when Christ return, returns. So John has talked about how the believers can have confidence in Christ's second coming, and now he's going to focus on what will happen when Christ returns. And I've titled this section, Looking Forward to Christ's Return. Let me read the first part of chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So in this next section, John is doing two things. He's first pointing the believers to focus on a present reality, and then he's going to point them to a future reality. In this first part, John reminds the church that they are God's children now, in the present. And he emphasizes this to show that the believers that their identity as children of God is not something that they look forward to or wait for, but they are children now. In other words, the believers do not have to wait to become children of God. They are God's children. They already have attained that right, that privilege. We are God's children now. And this is the same that's true for you and I, if we are in Christ. As we think about our lives, as we think about who we are and our identities, the many things that make us up, do you think about yourself as a child of God? Again, we're not looking forward to when we will be. But John says, we are God's children now. And yet, there's another facet to this. There's a greater fulfillment yet to come that we look forward to. John writes, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So John is describing this future reality that is true for all believers when Christ returns, we will, and we see him for the first time, all believers will be changed to be like him. We will be changed to be like him. And we're not talking about change to have his power, but change to be like him in his physical form. When we see Christ for the first time, our old, sin-filled, mortal bodies will be changed to be perfect, sinless bodies. In a moment, we will be changed from perishable to imperishable. So just like Jesus' resurrection body was different than the body that was killed and put on the cross, so too, our resurrection body is going to be different. We will have a body like his. And while we don't know all the details, we don't know the fun details about what age we will be or how much we'll look like our past self, the Bible does actually talk about this quite a lot. 
Listen to how Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's a cool verse. Our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious bodies. That's what we look forward to. We see Paul talk about this again in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. He says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. and We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is an amazing hope that we look forward to. Our bodies, no matter how great of shape we are in, are decaying and they're full of sin. We can look forward to that day when we will receive a resurrection body, a body that will never decay, a body that will never wear out or get infected with sin. This will happen, John tells us, by seeing Jesus, simply seeing him. And there's something amazing that will happen. When we see him, we will be changed. When we see Jesus face to face, as it says in Corinthians, we will be changed to be like him. As Christians, this is our hope. This is what we look forward to, to seeing Christ face to face, to being given a new body so that we can dwell with him forever in heaven. If we truly hope in these promises, this hope will begin to change us. Seeing Christ face to face and being given a new body. Let me see where I'm at. Um, these hope, hoping in this changes us. Hoping in Christ changes us. What we believe up here, what we believe about God never stays up here. As Saunders always says, our theology is always lived out in our lives. What you believe, what you truly hope in, will be worked out in your life. And this is exactly how John ends the passage. Look with me at the last verse. John writes, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Notice how John did not write this as a command. He is not commanding us to purify ourselves, although he could. Instead, he is simply communicating a reality that takes place when believers hope in Christ. John shows that all true believers who are hoping in Christ will purify themselves as he is pure. It's almost as if these believers can't help themselves. When a believer sets their sights and their focus on Christ and his glory, they will grow in purity and sanctification. That is how we are sanctified. We mature in Christ, not when we try harder, but when we look to Christ. Focusing on ourselves will not make us a better person. You will not purify your life by focusing on your own mess. 
That will make you frustrated and unsatisfied. But if you look to Christ, purification will follow as the good fruit. Just as a branch that abides in the vine bears much fruit, so too when we abide in Christ, we bear much fruit, fruit that lasts. As we look to Jesus, we will not naturally but supernaturally be changed more and more into his image. And this is exactly what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. Listen to this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What an incredible passage. What Paul is saying is that although we ultimately look forward to that day when we will see Christ and we will be changed to be like him, as we wait, we are being slowly transformed by his spirit into the image of his son. As we gaze at Christ, as we see his glory, we are slowly being changed. Not by trying harder, but beholding Christ. That is why each Sunday we gather week after week to read God's word. We do it so that we might see God's glory displayed in Christ and be transformed into his image. We worship an amazing God, amen? Amen. Let me pray.